From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, the latest from Israel and Gaza. And Sarah McCammon on the weekend politics and key court decisions. Then the record surge of migrants at the border. It's felt in sanctuary cities, including Chicago, where Mayor Brandon Johnson says... Look, we have people sleeping on floors and outside. Our police districts have been overwhelmed since the very beginning of this mission. And later, a guide to the good life by the old gays, wise sages of TikTok... Michael Mann on his new movie about the power and speed behind a famous name, Ferrari. First, we have our newscast. It is Saturday, December 23rd, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The U.N. Security Council has adopted a resolution to increase aid to Gaza, where warnings of famine are being reported. But in order to avoid a U.S. veto, the council stopped short of calling for a humanitarian ceasefire, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says it took a lot of work to get to a draft that the U.S. would let through the council. Thomas-Greenfield abstained, saying the resolution wasn't perfect, but says it offers a glimmer of hope in a, quote, sea of unimaginable suffering in Gaza. We were appalled that some council members still refuse to condemn Hamas's horrific terrorist attack on October 7th, which set so much heartbreak and suffering in motion. She says Israel is ready to pause fighting again, but Hamas has to agree to release more hostages. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The U.S. Supreme Court has denied a request from special counsel Jack Smith to fast-track a review of whether former President Donald Trump is immune from prosecution for his bid to overturn the results of the 2020 election. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the decision could delay his trial, which is scheduled for March 4th. The court didn't give any reason, and it did not say how many justices might have disagreed with the decision. So whatever happened behind closed doors will stay that way for now. Special counsel Jack Smith had been pushing the court to decide once and for all whether Trump is shielded from prosecution over January 6th. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson reporting. Energy storing hydrogen is considered a big potential climate solution. The Treasury Department this week released proposed guidelines for a tax credit for companies making hydrogen. As NPR's Julia Simon reports, the reaction is mixed. There are billions of taxpayer dollars on the table for hydrogen projects. The tax credits will be uncapped, why some have likened them to bottomless mimosas. But environmental groups have worried tax credits for green hydrogen might go to hydrogen that isn't really green and may have increased the use of fossil fuels. The new long-awaited draft proposals put more strict guardrails on creating green hydrogen. It requires these projects use electricity from new renewable energy sources and run at the same time the renewables are online. Some in industry voice concern the proposed rules are too stringent for the growing industry. Other climate researchers say the proposed rules are weak when it comes to hydrogen made from fossil fuels. Julia Simon, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston.
New details have emerged about the lead-up period to the mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, in October. In the weeks before Robert Card killed 18 people, police did not confront him because of fears of agitating him. That's according to video released by law enforcement yesterday. The video shows that police thought confronting Card during a September wellness check at his home would, quote, throw a stick of dynamite on a pool of gas. Card had threatened to shoot up an Army Reserve Center in Maine. A Taunton man who says he survived childhood sexual abuse by a local priest has reached a five-figure settlement with the Archdiocese of Fall River. The Taunton Daily Gazette reports that Daniel Lewis was 12 when he was assaulted. Two years ago, the Archdiocese said it had banished the priest from the ministry, and he died this month. Today is traditionally the biggest shopping day of the year for local retailers. Bill Rennie with the Retailers Association of Massachusetts says many small businesses can make 30 percent of their revenue in the few weeks before Christmas. He says it's a good reminder to consumers to shop local. They're the ones that support the local holiday stroll and the local food drive and toy drive and all those community type of events. So we all want a vibrant downtown Main Street shopping area. And if we want that, we have to support them with our shopping dollars. He says post-Christmas is also a great time to shop when stores are cleaning out their winter inventory. 2024 is slated to be Boston's biggest year for cruises ever. Boston.com reports that the 2024 cruise season is expected to set records for passenger and ship volume at Flynn Cruise Port in Boston. The city will host a record eight home port ships and 170 total vessels next season. The season kicks off March 29th. It is 29 degrees in Boston with lots of sunshine today and highs in the low 40s. Lows overnight in the low 30s. Some isolated showers tomorrow. Cloudy skies. Sunday's highs in the mid 40s. WBUR supporters include Neon with Ferrari, Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career with Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for being with us. The number of people who have died in Gaza from the Israel-Hamas war has now surpassed more than 20,000 people, according to the Ministry of Health there. And health officials say starvation and disease outbreaks are imminent. NPR's Kerry Kahn joins us from Tel Aviv. Kerry, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. UN agencies and others have been giving... Um, increasingly dire warnings about conditions in Gaza. What What's the latest you've heard? First of all, more than 85% of Gazans, according to the UN, have been displaced from their homes and into southern Gaza. Gaza that's in and around the city of Rafah. That's nearly 2 million people, Scott. Food and water is scarce, as are toilets. Hundreds of thousands of kids under five are on the brink of severe malnutrition, and that's according to UNICEF. Overcrowding is an understatement. Most people are living in schools or makeshift tents. Electricity is sporadic. And it rained hard here last night uh, with thunder and it's cold. You've had some communications uh, with uh, one of our producers in Gaza, uh, Anas Baba. What have you heard from him? 
It's been very hard to keep in touch with him uh, this week. He was able to send us some interviews about people dealing with the lack of phone and internet services. I want to play you a little bit from Mohammed Al-Namla. He's describing this hopelessness that he feels of not being in communication with anyone. قصف في كل مكان ما بتقدرش تطمن حتى على اخوك اللي هو ساكن بعيد عنك حتى لو Kerry, what has Israel said about the displacement of so many civilians and is there any indication of, of when people can begin to go back home even if it's been destroyed? I'll note that Israel says it is Hamas that has put so many civilians in danger, and that's by building tunnels and command centers and storing weapons in these dense populated places. Israel has just ordered new evacuations for even more residents out of central Gaza. I just want to play you a little bit from an English teacher, Bilal Shaber, who lives in central Gaza. He doesn't know where to go now, and he's still grieving the deaths of some of his students, many who were killed. Those little children and kids are very beautiful. Their hearts are like the birds, little birds. I do love them so much and I do miss them. I really cried like a little boy. It was like very tough for me. I'll note that President Biden yesterday says he was heartbroken himself about the news of a 73-year-old Israeli-American dual citizen who was believed to be a hostage but had actually been killed by Hamas in the October 7th attack and his body was taken to Gaza. What do we know about Israel's military phase right now? Military officials say they anticipate soon having, quote, operational control around Gaza City in the north. There are fierce battles raging in Khan Yunis, one of the largest cities in the south. And um, and that's where they believe that uh, leaders of Hamas are, are, are hiding out. That's according to military officials. Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, said uh, last night that forces are preparing for a further expansion into Gaza. <laughs> Gallant says the operation will be extensive, it will be long, and it will require patience. And Paris Kerry Khan in Tel Aviv, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Colorado Supreme Court entered the political fray this week by ruling 4-3 to three that former President Donald Trump is ineligible to run for office because he engaged in insurrection. In his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol, the decision will be appealed. That same day, Trump gave a speech in Waterloo, Iowa, in which he described immigrants as, quote, poisoning the blood of the nation, a phrase he repeated on a talk show yesterday. NPR's national political correspondent Sarah McCannon joins us. Sarah, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Scott. Let's start with that speech. Um in which he, President Biden's campaign compared Trump's words to Adolf Hitler and Kim Jong-un. Let us note, we look this up, Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf, all great cultures of the past perished only because the original creative race died out from blood poisoning. Chris Christie called Trump's comments disgusting. What about other Republicans? You know, Scott, other than Christie, those running for the Republican nomination seem much more hesitant to directly criticize Trump for those words. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley said the focus should be on border security, and she told the Des Moines Register, quote, that rhetoric is not helpful. 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis told the Christian Broadcasting Network that Trump's words don't, quote, move the ball forward and added, I would not put it in those terms. And, you know, Scott, that's the strategy coming from many other Republicans for responding to Trump. Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan, for example, told Politico, I wouldn't use that rhetoric. Republican Tom Tillis of North Carolina called it unhelpful. And the list goes on. So Trump is continuing his pattern of using this kind of language. It was just weeks ago he described his political enemies as vermin, as you may remember. And most of his fellow Republicans are continuing their pattern of offering tepid criticism of him at most. About that Colorado decision that Donald Trump is guilty of insurrection, does it shake up the primaries that begin in just a few weeks? So that decision, which is based on the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, has stirred up a lot of speculation, but in reality, it may not change things much, at least in the short term. The court said that Trump should not be on the Colorado ballot. His attorneys have promised to appeal that, and the Colorado court stayed its ruling until January 4th to give the U.S. Supreme Court a chance to weigh in. Now, Colorado is set to print its primary ballot the very next day, January 5th, so there's a ticking clock here. And Trump's former Attorney General Bill Barr says he thinks the strategy just won't work against Trump as much as people think. On Thursday night, Barr told CNN's Jake Tapper that the Colorado case was wrong and untenable. I think taking these hyper-aggressive positions to try to uh, knock Trump out of the race uh, are counterproductive. They backfire. As you know, he uh, feeds on grievance, just like a fire feeds on oxygen. And this is going to end up as a grievance that helps him. And however this Colorado case is resolved, Scott, will have implications for similar 14th Amendment cases in other states. Trump's legal team is still pushing for immunity for his tweets and actions uh, leading up to the January 6th insurrection. Um, hit a snag, right? Right. On Friday, the Supreme Court said it would not be hearing that case for now. The special counsel in the case, Jack Smith, had urged the high court to make that decision sooner rather than later. The court denied that, didn't give reasons why. So that case now goes to a federal appeals court, and there's a hearing on January 9th. But the bottom line is that this immunity question may take some time to work its way through the courts as we head into this key election year. Meanwhile, Congress has left town. Uh, no agreement on border security as it's tied to Ukraine or Israel or no separate agreements on support for Ukraine or Israel. Any resolution at hand? You know, President Biden has been pushing for more funding for Israel and Ukraine, saying money's running out for Ukraine in particular. Republicans tied those negotiations to demands for tighter rules surrounding the asylum process, among other things. Congress has not reached an agreement, uh, so that's a fight for the new year as well. NPR's national political correspondent, Sarah McCammon, speaking with us from Norfolk. Thanks so much for being with us today, Sarah. Thank you, Scott. We have a Christmas tree and a menorah in our multi-faith family, lights, candles, and presents, but our daughters are older. I hadn't seen a trace of the guy with the sleigh in years until I came across a man of a certain age, white beard, red suit, and scuffed black boots, sitting outdoors over a reusable holiday cup of cocoa. Is it you, I asked? Shh, he said. Last thing I need is a crush of people saying, Hey, I need a puffy coat Snoopy, now! You look fit, I told him. Ah, Zempic, he explained, then patted his belly, which no longer shakes like a bowl full of jelly. It's a washboard. And how are the elves? WFH, he said. I barely see him. Came in for the holiday party because we had free breadsticks. They packed it in, let me tell you, up to the bells on their stocking caps. I don't see your reindeer, 
Ah, they're all gig workers now, he explained. Donder, Blitzen, Harder is slay on Slift, and the screen flashes. Your closest reindeer are finishing a ride. What about Rudolph? The man in the red suit shrugged. Don't need a nose so bright to guide my sleigh now that I've got GPS, he said. But Rudolph's got his own podcast now, called You Slay Me. Let's just say, I'm not the hero. I miss leaving out cookies for you, I told the man. Ah, you apartment dwellers, he sighed. No chimney. I have to come down the trash chute. Yuck! But I guess it's the life I chose. I edged in a little closer to ask softly, So am I on the naughty or nice list? Ah, that list got lawyered out, he told me. Now you download the app, fill out reviews. He looked down at his phone. Mr. 1.5 star rating, he added. But your daughter's turned out well, he said. Kind, curious, funny, the important stuff. So you got a wish, he asked. I paused and told the bearded man in the red suit. Give each child a chance to be happy, healthy, and to play. That's all. The man took his hand off his warm cup and put it on my shoulder. Why don't we all work on that together, he asked. The bearded man's face then shone with a rosy glow. It was a soft red light from the screen of his cell phone. I gotta go, he told me. Dancer and prancer are a minute away. And a little something extra in the seasonal stocking if you want my thoughts each week in your inbox. It's my new weekly newsletter. You can sign up at npr.org slash Scott Simon Newsletter. Better than a lump of coal. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. And coming up this hour, we'll visit iconic bakeries in Boston's North End that have been cannoli making for generations. The flavors sure have changed. Oreo, cappuccino, peanut butter. Would your ancestors turn up their nose at like cappuccino cannolis? No. If they seen how much money we were making, no way. That story and more ahead on Weekend Edition. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Booksmith and Coolidge Corner, an independent bookstore offering books, gifts, events, and more, just in time for the holidays. More at brooklinebooksmith.com. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. The U.S. Supreme Court says it will not immediately take up a petition by special counsel Jack Smith to decide whether former President Donald Trump can be prosecuted for actions to overturn the 2020 election. The issue now heads to a lower court. Health officials in Gaza say the Palestinian death toll has surpassed 20,000. The latest figures come as Israel expands its ground offensive in the region and ordered tens of thousands more civilians to leave their homes. 
Power crews in Maine are working to restore electricity to people nearly a week after a powerful storm hit parts of the East Coast. More than 14,000 customers remain without service. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Last night in Colorado, two paramedics were found guilty of criminally negligent homicide in the death of Elijah McLean. These convictions come after years of attempts to try to hold first responders accountable in the death of the 23-year-old black man. Colorado Public Radio's Allison Sherry joins us. Allison, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. And, and please remind us the circumstances under which Elijah McLean died. Yeah, he was walking home from a convenience store in a Denver suburb of Aurora in 2019 when someone called and reported that he was acting strangely. Police violently detained him, they called paramedics, and soon he was dead. Initially, local prosecutors declined to charge the three police officers and two paramedics who were involved, but A year later, when George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis, Colorado Governor Democrat Jared Polis reopened the case and assigned a special prosecutor. The police officers were tried in two separate trials this fall, and then the paramedics these past several weeks. So their convictions now wrap up all the prosecutions in this case. The paramedics said Elijah McClain was in what they called a state of, quote, excited delirium. Yeah, a diagnosis that's since been discredited by medical professionals. It was mostly a law enforcement definition describing someone who was possibly overdosing, acting out of their mind, sometimes having superhuman strength. So the paramedics gave McLean a dose of the sedative ketamine, which the coroner says was the main contributor to his death in the hospital several days later. And again, McLean wasn't doing anything wrong or suspected of committing any crime at the time the police detained him. Why were the paramedics convicted of criminally negligent homicide as opposed to to medical malpractice? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's because of that autopsy I mentioned. You know, this case in some ways was straightforward. Body-worn camera footage shows the paramedics doing almost nothing to help McLean from the moment they get on the scene to the six minutes later when they give him an overdose of ketamine for his body weight. Then, after they give him the ketamine, They didn't really do anything either. They kind of let him lie there for a few more minutes before loading him onto the ambulance where they discovered he had no pulse. So all of that amounted to what prosecutors say was reckless negligence. What did the paramedics say in their defense? You know, really the paramedics, Jeremy Cooper and Peter Chikuniak, stuck with this excited delirium story throughout. Um, They took the stand in their own defense. They said they followed their training for delirium to a T. But body-worn camera footage shows McLean wasn't exhibiting excited delirium symptoms, especially when the paramedics arrived. He was handcuffed. He was still struggling with police, who he told he couldn't breathe. But he wasn't showing signs of, of crazy strength or deliriousness. 
So the paramedics saying that under oath, I think, could have seemed a little hollow to the jurors. Five men have now been tried in the death of Elijah McClain, three police officers uh, and the two paramedics, all of whom uh, are white. Did they all get criminal convictions? No. Two of the officers uh, originally charged were acquitted, but Officer Randy Rodima and these two paramedics, Cooper and Shukuniak, were all convicted of criminally negligent homicide, and all of them will be sentenced next year. And it's a pretty big sentencing range in Colorado from probation, so no prison time at all, to six years. The paramedic supervisor, though, I'll note, was led away in handcuffs on Friday because he was also convicted of an assault charge that guarantees custody. And Allison, what's been the response of uh, Elijah McLean's family? Well, Shanine McLean, Elijah McLean's mother, was extremely emotional afterwards. She left the courtroom saying, we did it, in tears with supporters. She texted me late Friday that she's still processing the verdict. She's hoping to speak to reporters next week. Allison Sherry with Colorado Public Radio. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All week, we've been taking a closer look at China since it lifted its COVID lockdowns a year ago. Over the last year, Beijing's relationship with Washington has continued to evolve, and American business has watched closely and nervously. NPR international, international Affairs correspondent Jackie Northam brings us the story. Over the past year, there's been a lot of talk about China plus one, diversification, and de-risking. They reflect the current tensions facing foreign businesses in China. This was illustrated in a recent poll by the American Chamber of Commerce in China, says its president, Michael Hart. One of the questions that we ask in our survey each year is, are you planning to move your operations outside of China? You know, this past year was the vast majority said no. Seventy some percent said we're not leaving. Now, the previous year it had been 80 some percent. And so, you know, a 10 percentage point increase of companies had said they're starting to look around for other locations. That's largely because of geopolitical tensions and Beijing's tightening of controls, including a new counter-espionage law. But Mary Lovely, an economist at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, says a key question is, where would the companies go if not China? She says one possible alternative is Mexico. The government there has been working to make it easier for multinational companies. But Mexico's always had a bit of trouble getting itself organized in terms of the infrastructure that are needed, the security level that's needed. You know, trains coming into the U.S. are routinely robbed. So, you know, you have to have the ports, the security, the financial system, the workers. India and Vietnam are also seen as potential alternatives. But they're not nearly ready for an onslaught of U.S. companies, says Dan Harris, a lawyer with Harris-Slawoski, which helps provide legal advice for foreign companies operating in China. Harris points to one client that produces fashion brand apparel, which moved all its manufacturing from China to Vietnam. And they would just say, we love Vietnam. It's so great. I can't even believe there are still people in China. And then three or four years later, they moved everything back to China because all of a sudden we'd need zippers fast or buttons fast and we'd have to fly them over from China and it cost us a fortune. Peter Tershwell, a supply chain specialist at S&P Global Market Intelligence, says China has just been at it longer than the other nations. He says they make a high quality product for a lower price and have good infrastructure. China has invested billions in roads and ports. They're the only country in the world that built their port infrastructure ahead of demand. 
whereas virtually every other country in the world is behind in their port development. But developments both inside and outside of China in the last year are not something American business owners can ignore. They are increasingly forced to make a choice. This is a photo of me at a brewing equipment manufacturing plant. In For Ian Rodenhouse, working in China is worth the risk. Before COVID, the 35-year-old logistics specialist started working with an associate in Shandong province promoting American craft beers. So it wasn't just the shipment of beer, the freight into China, but uh, it evolved into sort of a branding venture. The venture fizzled out with the pandemic, but Roden House, a Mandarin speaker, is about to return to China to try again. He's aware of the tension between Washington and Beijing, raids on companies and exit bans blocking the departure of some American citizens. He's been warned by friends and other people in the logistics industry to avoid the country. But Rodenhaus says he sees nothing but opportunity in China. If you're willing to take the risks initially to sort of wade through these maybe more challenging things that present themselves to you, it always will be worth the risk. I think that's just a feature of business, but I think especially in China. Hart, with the American Chamber of Commerce in China, says many other American companies feel the same way. The crazy thing about all of this is U.S. tensions are bad, Chinese economy has slowed, difficult to do business. Guess what last year? Record trade between U.S. and China. So despite the rhetoric and the wish to de-risk from China, business goes on, for now. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. And tomorrow on the Sunday Story with Ayesha, we introduce you to two men who helped build modern China, but now have a little to show for their life's labor. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. When Texas Governor Greg Abbott started busing migrants out of his state in the summer of 2022, the border crisis came home to some of the country's largest cities, including Chicago, where now Texas not only sends buses, but also private charter planes with migrants. For Chicago and other cities, it has meant struggling with ways to provide housing for tens of thousands, mostly Venezuelans, who hope to find a new home. Esther Yoon-Ji Kang of member station WBEZ reports. On a frigid, drizzly day in early December, Construction crews were hard at work erecting giant tents on a vacant lot on Chicago's southwest side. There were posters stapled to a wooden fence that enveloped the massive site, a former industrial lot. They read, this land is contaminated and save our community. This site was to be a temporary home for thousands of Venezuelan migrants who would live in winterized tents. But the state of Illinois nixed the plan after contaminants were found in the soil. It's been a huge challenge for Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson, elected back in April. It's an international crisis that I inherited. For months, Texas sent a daily influx of buses and in December sent a charter plane after Chicago started cracking down on buses for dropping off migrants outside of approved hours or locations. The numbers would reach more than 26,000 in 2023. It's been a struggle as Chicago, along with New York, Denver, Los Angeles, and other cities, has worked to provide shelter and services for the new arrivals. Throughout the summer and fall, thousands lived in some unlikely places, like at O'Hare International Airport and at police stations. Here's Mayor Johnson again. Look, we have people sleeping on floors and outside. Our police districts have been overwhelmed 
since the very beginning of this mission. This mission has cost Chicago hundreds of millions of dollars. The city has since cleared the police stations, but there are now reports of illnesses and even the death of a child at a shelter. Chicago's resources have been stretched thin, along with the patience of many of its residents. We say no! We say no! Protests cropped up at sites that were considered for housing migrants, and residents who live in disinvested neighborhoods and feel they've been overlooked have spoken up at contentious city council meetings. Our mayor went to fight for billions of dollars for migrants. Who's going to fight for monies for the black community? Other protesters have included people spouting anti-immigrant sentiments and also longtime undocumented residents wanting the same benefits like work permits that were given to Venezuelans by the Biden administration. Johnson, who prides himself on being a coalition builder, has asked for understanding. Chicago, just know that as frustrating as this is right now, your brother's working hard every single day. International policy, local ordinances, and everything else in between. Over the past few months, he's gotten some offers to help. One neighboring suburb is taking in about 160 migrants for a limited time. Churches have stepped up to provide housing. And the city of St. Louis is hoping to resettle hundreds, if not thousands, of Venezuelans who have work permits. Carlos Ramirez is vice president of Latino Outreach for the International Institute of St. Louis. In October, he drove up to Chicago City Hall to make a pitch for migrants to resettle in his town. It could be the potential for a great relationship between both uh, cities. Ramirez says St. Louis's population and its workforce have been declining, and bringing migrants from Chicago could be good for everyone. And if the people are going to be in a better place, uh, St. Louis is going to be in a better place, and Chicago is going to be a better place, I think everybody wins. His group is working with Chicago officials to recruit migrants who have work authorization and to secure as much housing in St. Louis as possible. Meanwhile, both Chicago and Illinois are asking the feds for more help, especially with the Democratic National Convention taking place here in 2024. Officials are looking to get a handle on the migrant crisis, before all eyes are on the Windy City. For NPR News, I'm Esther Yunji Kang in Chicago. Tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday, the 18th century hymn, Nearly Everybody Knows. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. How amazing grace came to be and why it has endured. You can listen tomorrow on your phone, on your smart speaker, or on your radio. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Of course, it's almost Christmas Eve, the night when Santa and Rudolph the all-nighter to deliver their gifts, but what about the rest of the year? How do reindeer manage to get enough sleep? A group of scientists say their secret might lie in multitasking. You can only hear this story here. Here's NPR's Ari Daniel. Did you plan to have this story come out around Christmas? (laughs) Yes, a little bit. (laughs) 
Gabby Wagner is a neuroscientist at the Norwegian Institute of Bioeconomy Research. She says reindeer habitat is different from most places on the planet. In winter and in summer, in the Arctic, we either have constant darkness or constant light. In summer, it's like an open buffet for the reindeer. Lichens, herbs, mushrooms, plants, they're all available. We know they're very, very active during the very short growing season in summer, and they're very lazy in winter when there isn't any food. But during that summer feeding bonanza, when reindeer have so much eating to do and so little time to do it, when is it that they sleep? And do they sleep less than in the lazy winter? To really know that, we need to measure brain activity. Melanie Fourel is a neuroscientist at the University of Zurich, and she says that no one had ever studied a sleeping reindeer brain before. So she and her colleagues turned to several females that live in an enclosure in Tromsø in northern Norway. Our data was recorded non-invasively, meaning that the electrodes were placed on their skin and not implanted in their brain. She measured the reindeer's brainwaves continuously for several days straight in the summer, then again in the fall, and once again in the winter. What we found was, first of all, they sleep a similar amount of time across the whole year. Suggesting that even though reindeer spend all that time eating and moving around during the summer, they found a way to still get as much sleep as they do at other times of the year. But how? Führer thought maybe something was happening during rumination when they were chewing their cud. While they chew, they are in a body position that is very similar to the one of deep sleep. So they have usually their eyes closed and they are quite still. Führer looked at the brain waves of the reindeer as they ruminated, and sure enough, they resembled those of deep sleep. In fact, the more the reindeer ruminated, the less deep sleep they required. Gabi Wagner says the conclusion is that rumination in reindeer serves two purposes, digestion and sleep. They're multitasking. Not only does it help them to get the most energy out of the food they have, but it also makes sure that their brain gets enough rest and they get the sleep they need. They're like us. They can't sleep one hour today and then catch up next week. Rather, reindeer need a certain amount of sleep every day. The research appears in the journal Current Biology. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a fascinating study. I loved it. Menno Herkema is a retired chronobiologist from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands who wasn't involved in the research. I'm rather enthusiastic about all the suggestions that are, are hidden in this paper. Suggestions for further research, for looking at other animals. As scientists look to what's next, these new findings also echo the traditional wisdom of the Sami. Gabi Wagner works with these indigenous people of Norway who've herded reindeer for centuries. Sami reindeer herders have known all along that the animals need peace to eat and lie down. To ruminate. Wagner says it's an important part of their biology that should be considered when setting aside rangeland for the animals, to give reindeer the space to chew their cud and sleep deeply, including on those long summer days when Christmas is but a dream. Ari Daniel, NPR News. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. A Cape Cod teacher at a school for people with disabilities has been indicted on charges including several counts of rape and assault and battery. The Cape and Islands DA office says 60-year-old Frederick Walters of Brewster told staff at the Latham Center that he was taking a student to a store and instead took her to his house and raped her. The student later said he had sexually assaulted her at the school on several prior occasions. He no longer works at the school. Groton police are asking for the help of the public in identifying a driver involved in the hit and run of a canine. Police say canine Bain was on duty when he was hit and injured shortly before 5 p.m. Wednesday. The driver did not stop. Bain is being treated at Tufts Animal Hospital for his injuries, including broken bones and punctured lungs. It is 29 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and highs reaching the low 40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. And the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alzo Slade admitted he was one of the 50% of men who think that if called on, they could land a commercial airliner. Nobody would die, but you would not be able to use the plane again. I'm, <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. I am definitely not one of those men who thinks they could beat Olympic marathon medalist Molly Seidel in a race and will tell her so personally on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. You almost certainly have heard the term save the best for last. It's often applied to that last bite of a great meal. But it is seldom used in speaking about life. A time of life when many people may feel tired, disregarded, overlooked. For one quad of senior friends, affectionately known as the old gays, their best years may be yet to come. NPR's Ryan Bank has this profile. With 11 million followers on TikTok and a name like the old gays, these fellows are anything but private about their sexuality or age. I used to be a looker, and now I can't see anything without my glasses. I used to have a straight face, and now there's nothing straight about me. But with as much as they do share on social media, which sometimes leaves very little to the imagination, there was still a lot more to show off. So the crew put together a book, because as 67-year-old Mick Peterson puts it, Old gays actually have a lot of life in them yet. Peterson and fellow 70-year-old member Jesse Martin told me the book The Old Gays Guide to the Good Life is part memoir, part self-help for anyone, whether you're straight, gay, on the old, or even on the young side. 
Although it's also audaciously salacious, because Peterson says it's important people know that your sex life doesn't necessarily have a shelf life. And he says, Because it sells. <laughs> Jesse Martin was the last to join the group, and he admits it wasn't exactly the kind of thing he'd ordinarily be a part of. Like this recent TikTok where the group dressed in nothing but Santa boxer shorts, lip-synced to Ariana Grande's Last Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody. This process of the old games, you have no idea how I had to get used to it. They were so free and would say anything, and I'm just like sitting there going, Dude. Martin has always considered himself a reserved person, sharing details about his personal life to millions, no less, was never something he'd thought he'd do. In one Father's Day post, the guys were asked to say something about their dads. And I simply said, where were you when I needed you? In the book, Martin details how his police officer father wasn't at all happy about having an effeminate son. After seeing the overwhelmingly positive response to his honesty, though, Martin had an epiphany. The anger and hate are something that just poisons you and makes you old and evil, so let go. And it's this mix of sexy antics and candid storytelling that made the old gaze a sensation in the first place. Martin says it saved him financially. And Mick Peterson says after a bout with a life-threatening illness, it might have actually saved his life. It's something to get up in the morning for, you know, to have that second cup of coffee rather than slinking back under the covers and getting up at two or three in the afternoon. He almost died three times almost, you know, and the third time wasn't the charm. Peterson is HIV positive and says he has no problem getting real about that and his other health problems because... I want people to know the story so that when they look at me, they can appreciate, you know, the hard work I've done to, to get back to, to some form of healthiness. All of the old gays have lost so much through the years, especially during the AIDS crisis. Between that unforgettable trauma, financial hardships, family difficulties, health problems, and all of the other trials of life, Jesse Martin says this unexpected act has been rejuvenating. Child, I'm so happy I can't stand it sometimes. Mick Peterson stops short of endorsing Martin's enthusiasm completely, but he admits, all in all, it's been a lot more good than bad. I'll paraphrase something that was told to me by Estelle Getty. She said to me, uh, child, there is no such thing as happiness. There are only degrees of unhappiness. And I would say for me, my unhappiness is relatively low. The old gays don't pretend to have all the answers, but they hope to entertain and provide a little advice to anyone looking to live the good life. Ryan Bank, NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. If you have a craving for some of the most authentic Italian food in Boston, then you go to the North End. If it must be a piece of genuine Italian pastry, you get a cannoli. As part of our field guide to Boston, WBUR's Lisa Mullins went to find out what goes into making cannolis at the North End's most venerated bakeries, which are still run by the same immigrant families that founded them decades ago. Bobby Agrippino has watched lots of first-timers sink their teeth into a cannoli and all its crunchy and creamy yumminess. That's a holy cannoli moment. Agrippino has lived in the North End his whole life and runs food tours here. There was about 12 pastry shops in the neighborhood at one time. You know, they all had the cannoli. 
Now it's down to just a handful. There is Modern Pastry on Hanover Street. It opened more than 90 years ago. And just down Hanover is Mike's Pastry. It's been serving up cannolis and other Italian pastries for 77 years. Around the corner on Salem Street, there is Bova's Bakery. The overnight baker is a fourth generation Bova. So I'm Jojo, my dad is Joe, his father was Big Joe, my cousin Joey, my cousin Joe. Jojo Bova's great-grandfather opened the bakery in 1926. The place is just the way Jojo remembers it as a kid more than 30 years ago. When I was four and five, I was rolling braids and, and hamburger buns out there on a milk crate. The place is decidedly not fancy. White paper signs written in black Sharpie identify the pastries in the display cases. A slice of Boston cream pie, chocolate brick, and anything else. I think that's everything. The shop is open 24 hours a day and doesn't quiet down until about 3 a.m. So Jojo Bova's got to keep the cases full. Every night he scans them to see what he needs to make that night. Almond biscotti, pistachio macaroons, probably some more raspberry arugula. And of course, cannolis. In the old days, Bovis filled the shells with only ricotta or Bavarian cream. These days, take your pick. Creme brulee, Nutella, salted caramel, Oreo, cappuccino, peanut butter, pistachio. Would your ancestors turn up their nose at like cappuccino cannolis? No. No, if they seen how much money we were making, no way. Tonight, Bob is going to make the cannoli that's the specialty of the house. He takes us into the kitchen. So this oven is original here. It's been here since uh, 1930, 1940. He heads to a wood baker's workbench in the way back. He unlocks his toolbox, pulls out just the right knife, and starts to make Florentine cannolis. The shells are like a Florentine cookie, all delicate and lacy. Bova cuts precise chunks of dough and pummels each one with his palm to make a patty. It's uh, basically almond brittle. It's sugar, honey, almonds, cream. And butter. How much butter is in each cannoli shell, roughly? I'm not sure I want to know, but tell me. It's a lot of butter. It's a lot of butter. Yeah, it's, it's all butter. Yeah, You're really pounding on it. Yeah. It may be tedious, but it's it's my life. It's a point of pride yeah. for you? Yeah. It's nice. He slides a tray of patties into a 400-degree oven. Watch out. It might be hot, okay? A few minutes later, the patties are just pliable enough to peel off the pan. Bova picks up an essential cannoli tool, a wooden peg that's about five or six inches long. He wraps a Florentine wafer around each peg to form the perfect shell. Bova fills the shells with sweet ricotta cheese, and then he'll do it all over again. It's hard to keep up with demand. I made 425 on Friday, and they were gone by Saturday night. I had to make another 300, and they sold by Sunday night. Customers appreciate that dedication and a good cannoli. Stevie Davis from Back Bay says she's sampled them all. I think Bova's is the best. The flavor, I don't know what it is, but it just tasted really good. I had the creme brulee one. I've had it multiple times now, and I've even been to Italy recently, and I still love bovas. The connoisseurs have different cannoli criteria. Well, I'm going to talk to you from a non-Italian perspective. That's Suman Prasad of Boston, in line at the iconic Mike's Pastry. I think the cannoli itself, if it's light and flaky, that's a good cannoli to me. 
You know, I don't like it super, super hard and dense. Her friend Cheryl Confer of Rentham says she's 100% Italian and sets a high bar for cannolis. A cannoli must have a high percentage of fat. We say ricotta, but other people say ricotta. And the shell must be really hard and never, ever soggy. And therefore, the cannoli must always be stuffed right in front of you and served immediately. Otherwise, eh, we don't want it. <laughs> Mike's Pastry offers up 19 flavors. I'm gonna order a pistachio cannoli. A clerk takes the order, then rushes to the back room where a worker squeezes thick filling into a shell and coats the ends with pistachio crumbles. Then the clerk scoots back to the customer to offer a final touch. What about some powdered sugar? Absolutely. My name is Angelo. I'm uh, the manager, the son of the owner at Mike's Pastry. Been here for over 40 years. Angelo Papa's stepfather was the late Mike Mercogliano, who founded the bakery. Mike's churns out 5,000 homemade cannoli shells a week. In the kitchen, men in baseball hats and women in hairnets work at a long table. Their aprons are white with flour dust. Uh, that's one person there, two, three, four, five, that are on the process of rolling out the dough. The dough's wrapped around wood pegs to form the shells, and then it's time to cook them. This would be the frying section. I just made that up. A baker drops a tray of 50 shells into the big fryer. Papa says he takes pride in doing things just as his stepdad did. If not the flair of the store or the personnel of the store, but the way we make the stuff. I can't say what makes mine special. I mean, I only do it the way Mike taught me how to do it. And if people buy it, great. If they like it, great. It seems to be working out for us, so I think we'll continue on. Music to the ears of cannoli lovers. Pistachio cannoli, all right, let's do it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lisa Mullins. You'll find more stories about the neighborhoods, history, and culture of Boston, including where to find great food, in WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. That's at wbur.org slash fieldguide. You better watch out. You better not cry, you better not pout, I am telling you why, Santa Claus is coming to town. To a chimney near you. Before he takes flight, prominent citizen of the North Pole has agreed to let us take that sleigh on a brief spin to learn about a few Christmas traditions from around the world. Ho, ho, ho. First up, Iceland. In the land of ice and fire, everybody gets a book for Christmas. So after everyone's had dinner and everything's been put away and the presents opened, people then retire to spend the rest of the evening reading. That's Alda Sigmund's daughter, author of The Little Book of the Icelanders at Christmas. She says this venerable tradition dates back to the Second World War. The Icelanders were actually quite affluent at the time, simply because we had occupying forces here. So first the British and then the American troops. And they brought jobs with them. They brought money into the Icelandic economy. Because of wartime restrictions, there weren't many goods for people to buy except paper. So 
Iceland began to print books, and one holiday... Books were the Christmas present of the year, obviously. There was really nothing else available. And the tradition just sort of stuck. In Mexico, Las Posadas is already well underway, as it is in other Latin American countries. Las Posadas means lodgings or inns. The tradition began as a religious procession through neighborhoods to symbolize Mary and Joseph's pilgrimage to Bethlehem to seek shelter, but they found no room at the inn. These days, many Mexicans, including filmmaker Alejandro Alvarez, celebrate posadas at home or in restaurants. You have a posada every Saturday, every Friday, all of December. You have the posada with the, the people you work with. You have the posada with your friends. You have the posada with the friends and family from the mother's family side. We have the posada with the family from my father's side. And any good posada will have a piñata. It can get rough out there, the piñata. Alejandro Alvarez says, you better watch out. Always there's like the kid who's got a whole lot of energy and it's his turn in the piñata and all of the parents get worried because he might hit someone because you're blindfolded. Yow! Now to Nigeria, where if you go to church, you're likely to see entire families resplendent in outfits tailored from the same cloth. For Christmas, we like to wear a traditional cloth and there's this phenomenon called Ashoebi, which literally means the cloth of my family. Akintunde Disu, a businessman, says this tradition creates a deep sense of belonging. You'd buy the same material and it's normally made out of just printed cotton and you all wear that so everybody it looks nice and neat for the festivities and it just shows you're all united and together. Now for our final stop, Australia, where it is summer. And roasting much of anything may sound just too sweltering. Prawns is one of the biggest Christmas ideas in Australia to enjoy a Christmas day. That's Nick Angelucci, who owns a barbecue company, and says that because of the heat in Australia this time of year, many prefer food that's chilled. We would sit there and have them all iced up and nice and cold, and uh, it's just uh, beautiful to sit back and drink a beer and eat a prawn and stay cool. Traditions are shaped by climate, by history and culture, different around the world, but so many growing out of a shared experience. Oh, and now, somebody needs this sleigh back. You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition continues.
WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza, Start First Night with a 2 p.m. organ concert, and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. And the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. As you support organizations that have real meaning in your life and throughout your community, please make a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering. Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund helps become something a lot bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it will help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, can the West use frozen Russian assets to pay Ukraine? And at Austin, OBGYN says that the Texas abortion law makes doctors anxious about providing care when a pregnancy is dangerous. The law is written in such an ambiguous way that there are always going to be cases where you're apprehensive about providing that care because nobody wants to end up in criminal court. And in sports, from dead last pick of the NFL draft to favorite to be MVP, the ballad of Brock Purdy, and share. That's all we need to say. We replay our delightful holiday visit. First, our newscast at Saturday, December 23, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Palestinian town of Bethlehem will not be celebrating the Christmas holiday this year. NPR's Scott Newman reports Christian leaders have canceled public festivities in solidarity with Gaza. Normally, the town that is synonymous with the birth of Jesus is festooned with lights, a giant Christmas tree in Manger Square, and throngs of foreign tourists queuing up to enter the Church of the Nativity. But not this year. The patriarchs of Bethlehem's Christian denominations have said celebrations should be confined to homes. At Bethlehem's Evangelical Lutheran Christmas Church, the congregation has gone a step further. Instead of the traditional nativity scene, they've placed the baby Jesus amid a pile of rubble to symbolize the plight of children dying in Gaza. The church's pastor, Reverend Munter Isaac. I hope people get the message, namely that this war must end. We need a ceasefire. Gaza's health ministry says more than 18,000 people have been killed in the fighting in Gaza since a deadly Hamas attack on Israel 10 weeks ago. Scott Newman, NPR News, Bethlehem in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Former President Donald Trump is vowing to appeal a state Supreme Court ruling that removes him from the ballot in Colorado because of his role in the January 6th insurrection. NPR Sarah McCammon reports the decision is prompting other states to fast-track similar efforts, but it's unclear whether they'll be successful. 
Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, says he thinks the strategy just won't work against Trump as much as people think. On Thursday night, Barr told CNN's Jake Tapper that the Colorado case was wrong and untenable. That's NPR Sarah McCammon reporting. A jury in Colorado has returned guilty verdicts for two paramedics for their roles in the death of a 23-year-old black man. Colorado Public Radio's Tony Gorman reports Elijah McClain was walking home in 2019 when he was confronted by police officers who forcibly restrained him. Jeremy Cooper and Peter Chikuniak were found guilty of criminally negligent homicide in the death of Elijah McClain. The two men gave the 23-year-old a lethal dose of the sedative ketamine after police had put him in a carotid hold. Chikuniak was also found guilty on one of two second-degree assault charges. Following the verdict, NAACP Aurora Chapter President Omar Montgomery called for continued reform of the justice system. Justice is Elijah McClain being alive. That's justice. Right now, we're part of a process of accountability for what should have been justice. Chikuniak was immediately taken into custody. His sentencing is set for March. For NPR News, I'm Tony Gorman in Denver. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A Cape Cod teacher at a school for people with disabilities has been indicted on charges including several counts of rape and assault and battery. The Cape and Islands DA's office says 60-year-old Frederick Walters, a Brewster, told staff at the Latham Center that he was taking a student to a store and instead took her to his house and raped her. Later, the student said he had sexually assaulted her at the school on several prior occasions. He no longer works at the school. Today is the deadline to sign up through the state for health insurance for January 1st. More people are now set to qualify for lower-cost insurance through the state's Connector Care program. This year, lawmakers increased income limits for the program to 500 percent of the poverty level. Health Connector Executive Director Audrey Morse Gasteyer says people already in the system who now qualify for Connector Care are automatically enrolled. So people don't need to do anything to get into Connector Care. We've done that for them. That being said, if they'd like to make a switch from one carrier to another or, or, or switch their plans, update anything, this is the time for them to come in, see what they're getting, uh, make any changes that they may want to. General open enrollment on the health exchange lasts through January 23rd. The state is investing $50,000 to improve recreational saltwater fishing in Massachusetts. The funding from the Department of Fish and Game will be split between two projects in Beverly and Edgartown. The money will be used to make repairs, improve access, and reduce coastal erosion. Today, the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston is hosting a mini film festival for the younger set. Kid Flicks will showcase the best short films from around the world for ages five and up, starting at 11 this morning. At one this afternoon, the ICA will show Spanish language films with English subtitles. Admission is free for children. Last night, the Bruins lost to the Jets 5-1. to Tonight, the Bees take on the Minnesota Wild. This afternoon, the Celtics play the Clippers in L.A., it is 29 degrees in Boston with sunshine today and temperatures reaching the low 40s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. The United States has already given Ukraine more than $75 billion in aid since the war against Russia began last year. But there's opposition in Congress to continued funding without conditions. There are $300 billion in frozen Russian assets. And Ann Applebaum suggests now's the time to thaw them out and give them to Ukraine. She explains her reasoning in her latest piece in The Atlantic, and she joins us now. And thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. How hard or easy is this to uh, unfreeze $300 billion and then direct it to Ukraine? So I think, I mean, technically it's very easy. The The money is in European, mostly European banks, some in American banks. Uh, it's a, a, you know, a, a, a swipe of the pen and it's released. The difficulties up until now have been both legal and pragmatic. Uh, you, some have argued that legally this this constitutes is a violation of Russian sovereignty, property mm-hmm. rights. Uh, increasingly, though, the fact that Russia has violated Ukraine's sovereignty and Ukraine's property rights has taken Ukrainian land, uh, has destroyed Ukrainian cities, kidnapped Ukrainian children. Uh, Sooner or later, Russia has to pay reparations for all of that, and people are beginning to argue, why not make them do it now? You know, this is a kind of advance down payment on the reparations that Russia will eventually have to pay. And there's a pragmatic argument that some European countries and some yeah. European banks are worried that there will be repercussions if we do this, that the Russians will retaliate, that other countries will be afraid to keep their money in dollars. Well, you, you, um, let, let me just... In the interest of time, you anticipate almost all of my questions in uh, in in response. But let me begin when you say sooner or later Russia will have to pay reparations. I don't think Vladimir Putin says that at all. Uh, no, but the, the, the coalition around Ukraine, which includes 50 countries around the world, will want him to pay reparations. And if we have this money and we can make him pay reparations now, then we can do it. Isn't, and may I ask, isn't the whole idea of sanctions also to be some kind of an incentive uh, to, to give Russia a reason to say, ah, you know what, we'll leave Ukraine. Give us our $300 billion. There are different kinds of sanctions. Some are, are really export controls. Some are sanctions intended to influence behavior. Mm-hmm. But it's been nearly two years, and the sanctions intended to influence behavior haven't worked. Uh, so we need to move on to the next phase. And the next phase is... Um, make Russia pay reparations with its own money. Based on what the world has seen of the behavior and decisions and policies of Vladimir Putin, how practical is it to expect the Russian regime to accept this and not retaliate some way, economically or even militarily, to say this is a major act of theft? So they may well retaliate economically. I don't think they can retaliate militarily. They've been retaliating against Ukraine already for two years without any success in the sense that their goal, which was to destroy the Ukrainian state, has not been achieved. Um, there could be economic side effects, but and there are some risks. But you know, given the risks of not helping Ukraine, given the risks of Western countries running out of money or running out of the ability to fund the Ukrainian state and, and the Ukrainian army, um, the, 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 the catastrophic consequences of failure, which would, you know, a Russian conquest of Ukraine, further Russian threats to other NATO countries are so high that it's becoming clear that the risk is worth taking. Let me ask you about Alexei Navalny. 
um, as we speak, he has he has essentially been disappeared from the prison camp where he was serving a 19-year sentence. So much concern around the world. Um, do we have any indication about where he might be, or any indication that the calls around the world to make his whereabouts known have any effect on Russia? The best guess of the people who know him, and I was in touch with some of them in the last few days, is that he's been moved to a camp or a prison somewhere very far away from Moscow. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, although he is in prison, and although Russia is about to run a, a fixed, I talk about rigged elections, uh, you know, an election in which Putin will win, the Russian state may be nervous that he, even behind bars, he has the ability to influence people and to persuade them not to vote for Putin, not to accept the ongoing war, and they seem to want him out of the way. That That's the best. And, but there do, and there doesn't seem to be, so far, any indication that outside pressure affects them much at all, no. In the 45 seconds we have left, uh, if Vladimir Putin is reelected, I believe he's on a direct course to have an administration that lasts longer than Joseph Stalin's. Is he a latter-day Stalin? He's he's moving rapidly in that direction. I really didn't think it was possible. I thought that Stalinism was gone. The Soviet Union was gone. Uh, I didn't believe they want to, re to to bring it back. But they, you know, the Russia is recreating a totalitarian state in which almost no political opposition is possible. And Applebaum of the Atlantic, thanks so much for being back with us. Thank you. This month, a Texas woman sued her state for the right to an abortion in a first-of-its-kind challenge since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Her pregnancy posed a threat to her health and future fertility. The diagnosis for her fetus was catastrophic. In the wake of the case, doctors say that urgent questions about their rights to perform emergency abortions remain unanswered. Olivia Aldridge from member station KUT reports. When 31-year-old Kate Cox sued the state of Texas for the right to get an abortion under the emergency medical exception to the state's abortion law, her case felt all too familiar to Dr. Leah Tatum. An OBGYN practicing in Austin, Texas, Tatum has had patients whose fetuses were diagnosed with conditions that are almost always fatal, just like Cox. But she couldn't give them the option of terminating their pregnancy. It just wasn't clear if it was legal. I think that in Texas we can do better. I think it is sad to practice women's health in a state that has made it so hard to take care of patients. The Texas Supreme Court ultimately denied Cox's petition when it overturned a lower court order that had initially gone her way. Cox ended up leaving Texas to seek an abortion. The higher court's opinion boiled down to this. Courts are not responsible for deciding if a pregnant person's condition meets the standards for an emergency abortion. Physicians are. People like Dr. Tatum. It felt like what they did was they kind of punted it back, you know, saying, we're not the physicians, you know, who are the ones to make a call, but that it's, you know, medically necessary to step in for her. Texas law allows the procedure only if a pregnant woman has, quote, a life-threatening physical condition that carries danger of death or risks impairing a major bodily function. Where exactly is the line of what counts as life-threatening? Well, doctors are told to use reasonable medical judgment. 
but if they get it wrong, they can face 99 years in prison, $100,000 in fines, and the loss of their medical license. For many doctors, including Tatum, those risks are too steep. The law is written in such an ambiguous way that there are always going to be cases where you're apprehensive about providing that care because nobody wants to end up in criminal court. Although the Texas Supreme Court pinned responsibility on doctors, it also said the Texas Medical Board, a state agency that regulates medical practice in Texas, could offer more specific guidance. To Elizabeth Sepper, a reproductive law expert at the University of Texas at Austin, this amounts to confirmation that the exception lacks clarity. I think that's an admission that we have a confusing complex of state abortion bans in place and that physicians can't understand them. And, and more to the point, I'm not sure the Texas Supreme Court can understand them. A Texas Medical Board spokesman declined to comment, citing pending litigation. But for an example of what guidance from the board might look like, Sepper says to look to Louisiana, which offers a list of conditions that make abortion allowable. Trisomy 18, the condition Kate Cox's fetus was diagnosed with, is on that list. But even if the Texas Medical Board offered something similar, Tatum says it wouldn't be enough for all the things that can go wrong in a pregnancy. I think that that would be better than where we're at right now, but you're never going to come up with an all-inclusive list is the problem. Doctors are also keeping a keen eye on an upcoming decision from the Texas Supreme Court in another case, Zorowski v. Texas, in which plaintiffs are pushing for a binding interpretation that would allow physicians to use their, quote, good-faith judgment when assessing emergency abortion needs. In that case, lawyers from Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's office have argued that it's physicians who should be sued if access to a medically necessary abortion is denied, not the state. Yet following the district judge's decision in Cox versus Texas, Paxton's office also sent a letter to several hospitals, threatening them and their staff with liability if they facilitated Cox's abortion. Eight Texas hospital systems and organizations contacted by NPR for a response to Paxton's letter declined to comment or did not respond. Again, here's law professor Elizabeth Sepper. I think doctors knew they were between a rock and a hard place. And I think the confluence of the Cox decision and the position of the state of Texas in the Zorowski case makes clear that both the rock and the hard place are the state of Texas. And between that rock and that hard place, doctors have to keep doing their jobs. For NPR News, I'm Olivia Aldridge in Austin. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on 90.9 WBUR, the nation's Head Start program has a severe shortage of teachers in Massachusetts. That means closed classrooms and long waiting lists for families. WBUR's Emily Piper Villillo has the story. It's 32 degrees in Boston, mostly sunny skies today, and highs reaching the low 40s. 
turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Orchestra Institute at New England Conservatory for students 13 through 18. Priority registration ends February 4th. Apply at necmusic.edu. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. I'm Windsor Johnston with these headlines. An estimated 115 million Americans are expected to travel between Christmas and New Year's. Airports across the nation are gearing up for the busy holiday travel period with more than 7 million people expected to fly. Congress is launching an investigation into the V-22 Osprey program following a deadly crash in Japan that killed eight Air Force service members. The entire fleet remains grounded, with the exception of some limited Marine Corps flights. The Wisconsin Supreme Court has overturned a Republican-crafted legislative map and has ordered new ones to be drawn. The ruling marks a major win for Democrats who argued the maps were unconstitutional. I'm Windsor Johnston, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. And from Churchill Downs, presenting the 150th Kentucky Derby, dedicated to making memories last forever for nearly 150 years, the Kentucky Derby on Saturday, May 4th. More at KentuckyDerby.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The U.N. Security Council finally approved a resolution about the 11-week-long conflict in Gaza after much negotiation. It stopped short of urging a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Instead, it calls for more humanitarian assistance to reach the area. And our diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman joins us. Michelle, thanks for being with us. Nice to be here, Scott. Maybe the news here is what this resolution does not call for, which is uh, a ceasefire. Can you tell us why? Yeah, I mean, the U.S. opposes it. Um, Before this vote, it had actually vetoed U.N. calls for a ceasefire. And U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield says diplomats worked hard all week to get this latest draft to a place where the U.S. could abstain and let it grow through. Take a listen to what she had to say to reporters after the resolution was adopted. The resolution is not perfect. We were appalled that some council members still refuse to condemn Hamas's horrific terrorist attack on October 7th, which set so much heartbreak and suffering in motion. You know, Scott, while she says the U.S. doesn't support a ceasefire because Israel has the right to go after Hamas, she says Israel is willing to pause fighting, as it did for a week last month, if Hamas releases more hostages. That's diplomacy that's going on outside of the chambers of the U.N. Security Council, but inside the chamber, the U.S. has gotten a lot of flack for its position on this situation, both, you know, around the world, but also here in the United States. What's the resolution actually do? 
So it calls for urgent steps to allow safe and unhindered humanitarian access across um, Gaza. And it it talks about creating the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities. That's kind of the broad language in there. The ambassador from the United Arab Emirates, Lana Nusebe, says she thinks it will make a difference on the ground and it will help to get more aid into Gaza, which she says is urgent. But it definitely falls short of what she had hoped to get. Here's what she said after the vote. It is not lost on us that while today we start building a humanitarian architecture that responds to an intolerable situation, we are still unable to stop the war. It is not lost on us that despite the incalculable damage visited upon them with impunity, Palestinians are asked to accept that diplomacy is the art of what is possible. The art of what's possible. So getting this resolution through, which doesn't call for a ceasefire, but does, she says, offer a glimmer of hope for Palestinians right now. And Michelle, please tell us about the UN sounding more alerts about the dire conditions there in Gaza. Yeah, I mean, the UN has been warning that about a quarter of the population, that's half a million people, face hunger and starvation. The UN Secretary General says the health system is on its knees, hospitals in the north are barely operating, and those in the south are over capacity. And, you know, he said that humanitarian workers who have served in war zones all over the world are telling him that they have just never seen anything like this. Let's look ahead at events just over at the horizon. Are there going to be more efforts to try to get the United Nations more involved in Gaza? Well, that's the idea, to have a U.N. coordinator overseeing the aid operation and then reporting back to the Security Council. So there will likely be more debates and probably more pressure on the U.S. to change its stance. NPR's diplomatic correspondent Michelle Kellerman, thanks so much. Thank you. The S&P 500, a stock index that includes 500 of the biggest and best-known companies in the world, is close to hitting an all-time high, which is a surprise given how much anxiety the public has had about the economy, especially inflation, even though some new data shows that sentiment might be turning around. And Pierre's David Gura joins us. David, thanks for being with us. Happy to be here, Scott. Let's start with those gains. How well has the stock market done in 2023? Incredibly well. Uh, You know, what's remarkable about this is where we are today, given how much concern there was at the beginning of the year about a potential recession and how much pessimism there's been among Americans about the economy. Just look at the latest data, including new inflation data we got yesterday, which showed that prices dropped for the first time in more than three years. That's huge, given how much inflation has dominated the conversation we've been having about the economy over the last few years. So we're in a very different place right now. The economy has continued to improve, and that has led to these record gains. The S&P 500 is up almost 25 percent this year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, yes, a smaller index, but with some big names, including Apple and Boeing and J.P. Morgan Chase, is up more than 12 percent this year. And the NASDAQ, which includes more tech companies, is up more than 40%. So we have seen a big rally. Uh, But, Scott, there is a major caveat here. I knew that was was coming somehow. (laughs) What is the caveat? Well, when you dig into these numbers, it turns out that for most of the year, the bulk of the S&P 500's gains were thanks to just a handful of stocks. Bank of America's chief investment strategist, Michael Hartnett, nicknamed those the Magnificent Seven. He told me he's a fan of old westerns. You've got this concentration of winners. 
you know, within the S&P 500, there's seven of them. They're looking pretty magnificent because of their exposure to AI. Of course, that's artificial intelligence, which has been one of the big stories of this last year. A lot of people talking about its potential to disrupt the economy and the world more broadly. Uh, Wall Street has channeled its enthusiasm for AI into these seven stocks. Most of these are household names. They're companies that make products I think most of us use. Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, Apple and Amazon. Meta is another one. That's Facebook's parent company, Microsoft. And then there's the car maker Tesla and NVIDIA. That's a company that designs chips for many of the supercomputers that power artificial intelligence. Hartnett told me shares of these seven companies alone are up more than 108% year to date. But David, is that a problem, the, uh, the, the narrowness of this rally? You know, it can be a problem, Scott, if only a handful of stocks are driving a rally, because if there's a downturn and a sell-off, that would drag down the entire stock market. What you want to see are broader gains. You want to see a broad swath of the economy reflected in the stock market, not just a narrow segment of tech companies. Mark Desard is the chief investment strategist in the asset management group at PNC, and he told me this rally has to become more inclusive. We need to see it in some of the industrial type companies. We need to see it in financials. We need to see it in real estate, healthcare. So we need to see broader, I'll say, overall sector participation. And Scott, there have been signs that is starting to happen over the last couple of weeks. What kind of signs? We saw the start of what's being called an everything rally after the Federal Reserve wrapped up its last meeting of the year. You know, it's been in this fight against high inflation. It's raised interest rates higher than 5%. And this week, there was a marked change from policymakers. They sounded a really hopeful note about the economy. They suggested cutting interest rates is now on the table. In their economic projections for the new year, they said they anticipate cutting rates three times. It's something that hasn't happened in years. And yesterday's inflation data made Wall Street more optimistic that'll happen. We saw prices fall for the first time since April of 2020. We also learned that people are still spending, even though we've seen the cost of borrowing go up so much. That matches what we're seeing in surveys lately, that consumers' confidence in the economy is higher, which is also notable given how much of a disconnect there's been between how good the economic data have been yeah. and how people feel about it. So there's new optimism, yes, about the state of the economy and the future of the economy, but also about markets in the new year, that this rally will continue, Scott, and it will keep broadening beyond those magnificent seven stocks. Magnificent seven. That's where Yul Brenner plays the cowboy. There you go. It's all in queen. Black, right? <laughs> exactly. All right. The very same. NPR's David Gura. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. The United Methodist Church is facing a crisis that will define its future. Roughly a quarter of its 30,000 congregations in the U.S. are leaving over the church's views on marriage, sexuality, and its position on LGBTQ members and clergy. The United Methodist Church has what's estimated to be over 5 million members now. More congregations might vote to leave by December 31st, which has been the deadline to vote. Matthew Wilson is an associate professor of political science at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. How would you describe the difference between various groups? Well, I think at the core of the difference is issues surrounding sexuality and marriage. And there, there are certainly other issues. There are theological and ecclesiological points on which the traditionalists and the progressives disagree. But really, at the core and the root of it, things keep coming back to just fundamentally different conceptions of what marriage is, what gender is, and, and how the church ought to position its teachings with regard to sexuality. And, and that has 
just proven an inseparable divide between them. So there's some congregations that that accept LGBTQ members, if I might put it this way, without sermonizing them and others that, that, that think they need that. I think any congregation will accept anybody to, you know, come to church, to participate in the religious life of the community. The question is things like marriage ceremonies and ordinations. That's really where the rubber hits the road here, is who can be ordained as clergy in the denomination, who can be married by ministers in the denomination, and there are just fundamental differences about what the rules surrounding those things should look like. Yeah. Is there a distinct demographic difference that that you've been able to chart? Generally speaking, the more conservative traditionalist churches have tended to be in the South and in the Midwest. The more progressive churches have tended to be in the Northeast and on the West Coast. That speaks to the American church. Now, then there's also a more global Mm -hmm. phenomenon where the church is fastest growing in the developing world, particularly in Africa, the great majority of sentiment is on the more conservative side. And what brought this schism, if I might put it this way, to a head now? There has been, for at least a century, just brewing debates in American Protestantism about traditionalism versus modernism. But these things really came to a head within Methodism uh, within the last 10 years or so as some of the progressive churches started defying the Book of Discipline and the rules within the church by ordaining openly gay clergy, by officiating at same-sex marriages. And the traditionalists were angered by this and said, look, these practices are prohibited under our church rules, under our teachings and the Book of Discipline. And the traditionalists would win, typically, when these things came to votes at the global Methodist bodies. But then many of the progressive congregations would just ignore those rulings and ignore those votes. What are some of the repercussions going to be for the faith at large and and individual congregations? Well, this certainly has created a lot of of pain and division within the denomination and within some individual churches because you've got people who have been friends and colleagues for a long time who have fundamentally different views of this. And, you know, you certainly have some people who are changing churches, who are left without a church home because their church either chooses to leave and they disagree with that, or their church chooses to stay and they disagree with that. Are there financial repercussions? There are, although the the church has tried to deal with those as best it can by creating this amicable separation process. So churches who choose to leave, you know, don't get divested of all their property and they don't become homeless and lose their church building and, and those sorts of things. But there are definitely financial repercussions for various denominational entities. If we think about seminaries, universities, charitable works, hospitals, right? Methodists sponsor all of those things. And the question for all of those going forward is who are the Methodists and what is the financial support for a given hospital or university or seminary going to look like? But the difficulty for all of these institutions is going to be managing their relationship going forward with these different Methodist bodies. And those are things to be determined in the future. 
That's right. That's right. We don't know yet exactly uh, how those relationships are going to be negotiated, in part because the, the traditionalists are not entirely settled on what their future looks like. Some of the churches that have left have become part of the global Methodist church. Mm-hmm. Others are talking about forming other more traditionalist Methodist bodies. And still others have just gone the independent route. And, and they may trend over time to become essentially like independent, non-denominational, conservative Bible churches. Matthew Wilson, Associate Professor of Political Science at Southern Methodist University, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Low income families across the country are finding it difficult to get their children into early childhood education programs. Many of these families rely on Head Start, a federal program that offers services for free to children under the age of five, but the program can't get enough teachers. WBUR's Emily Piper Villillo reports on the difficult decision that centers are making to try to keep classrooms open. Erin Abreu enrolled her 11-month-old in Head Start in 2020. I was in a shelter, and I was currently working, but I needed help. I needed my daughter to be in a daycare. A center in Boston accepted her daughter Adeline into its program right away. Abreu was able to work longer hours once Adeline was in childcare. Now she's able to afford an apartment. Adeline eats healthy meals at her Head Start program. She also receives dental care and spends her days learning numbers and words. She's so smart. Like she, um, here, you know, they taught her, like when it comes to books, she knows how to identify letters. She tells me how her day went in school. She's polite, she's respectful. Like she's learned most of that here. Abreu welcomed a second daughter last year. But this time, her younger daughter was placed on the program's wait list. She's still waiting nearly a year later. The problem is that low wages make it hard to recruit teachers. Head Start teachers make, on average, roughly $39,000 a year, or about 60% of what they could make teaching kindergarten in a public school. Tommy Sheridan is deputy director of the National Head Start Association. He says federal funding is not enough to cover rising operational costs like rent and competitive teacher pay. We have seen incremental increases over the last decade, um, but nothing getting us close to the degree that our staff need or, or, frankly, that they deserve. So program directors across the country are resorting to a drastic step to keep centers open. They're closing classrooms and placing families on wait lists. A Head Start program in western Massachusetts permanently shut two of its ten centers and reduced classroom seats in the remaining eight. Anat Weisenfreund is the program's director. She says now her agency has the flexibility to increase teacher salaries by more than 25%. Some salaries are as high as $58,000 a year. It's really incredible. We have filled almost all of our vacancies within six weeks. It's really very simple. You got to pay people a fair and decent wage. Weisenfreund says the decision to close classrooms was hard but necessary. But it is directly on the backs of children and families by preventing access. 
Head Start leaders know closing classrooms is not a permanent fix. But they don't anticipate an influx of federal dollars anytime soon. And they worry about centers being flagged as under-enrolled, a status that puts them at risk of losing federal funds. So for now, a better solution remains out of reach. Back at the Head Start Center in Boston, Erin Abrews' three-year-old daughter Adeline sits on a fuzzy rug with her classmates. They practice some new words. Big, 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 small, small, small. Ready? But down the hall, there's a sign pinned to a door. It says, classroom is closed. Adeline won't lose her place in the program, but it's unclear when another space will open up for her sister and the other kids stuck on the wait list. For NPR News, I'm Emily Piper Valillo in Boston. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Today is the deadline to enroll in a health insurance plan through the Massachusetts Health Connector for people who need to make sure their insurance starts January 1st. Open enrollment at the state's health insurance marketplace continues for a month for people looking to have their coverage kick in by February 1st or March 1st. Year-round Nantucket residents might not have as many choices as usual for dining out this winter. The Nantucket Current reports that 14 restaurants with year-round licenses on the island have applied for extended closure approval. The select board must approve these requests. The town licensing administrator says many of the requests stem from the ongoing impact of the pandemic. The town's exploring ways to give restaurants incentives to stay open year-round. Tonight, the Bruins are on the road against the Minnesota Wild. This afternoon, the Celtics play the Clippers in L.A. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Sunshine today, highs in the low 40s. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alzo Slade admitted he was one of the 50% of men who think that if called on, they could land a commercial airliner. Nobody would die, but you would not be able to use the plane again. I'm (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. I am definitely not one of those men who thinks they could beat Olympic marathon medalist Molly Seidel in a race and will tell her so personally on this week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. And as it says on the t-shirt, it's time for sports! What will the global economy look like now that the Dodgers have spent all the money? What a do with three helpings of pigskin this Christmas and as Mr. Irrelevant turned into the most valuable player in the NFL. ESPN's Michelle Steele joins us. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Sure. Happy Christmas Eve Eve. Uh, I guess it is more yeah. or less Christmas Eve Eve. Uh, <laughs> boy, the Dodgers. Uh, they spent a shade over a billion dollars on Shohei Otani, $750 million. Now, uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, a mere $325 million deal. But haven't we learned, and big teams mm. have learned, that signing big stars doesn't always deliver victory? Yeah, billion dollars. It's a lot of money, but I've got two words for that, Scott. Arizona Diamondbacks. Yeah. Uh, the Snakes beat the Dodgers this year in the playoffs. They swept the Dodgers on their way to a World Series appearance. And the D-backs payroll, I looked it up, $143 million last season. That's like 20% of an Otani uh, in the wild card era, super teams just have not equaled yeah. championships. You know, this isn't the NBA where you get three stars together and they go on a run. The Yankees, of course, are the example that everybody brings up as a super team that did win consecutive World Series, but that was in the last century. Nobody's done it since. And ESPN did the numbers on this. In the last decade, 14 teams have made the World Series, right? Yeah. Nine different teams have won. Scott, that's more than the NHL, wow. the NBA, and the NFL, which is held up as the yeah. all-time parity league. So the Dodgers are going to be great, but the odds just aren't in their favor. Christmas Day used to be a time for families, but this year, three games on Christmas Day. I got to tell you, I don't know if I like it. Not only are players not with their families, but families uh, are watching football and not L for the Hallmark Channel. Uh, <laughs> this being said, Baltimore versus San Francisco could be a Super Bowl preview, couldn't it? Yeah, sure. You know, you look at the top two teams of their conferences, San Francisco and Baltimore are right there. We have a chance to preview what could be going down in Vegas uh, in February next year. You know, the Ravens, Lamar Jackson, of course, their quarterback, he was asked about this being a Super Bowl preview, and he downplayed it, saying that he's just focused in on this game. And, you know, I hear a lot of players say that. I'm just locked in on this next game. But certainly these coaching staffs are going to be circling this game on Christmas Day. And it'll be cool to see these teams get a chance to sort of test themselves against each other. I would say the matchup to watch here is Lamar Jackson, who's an elite runner mm -hmm. against that Niners defensive line. And what he does running around during games, he's a game plan nightmare. So this is going to be a little bit of a Christmas present for football fans. And, of course, Brock Birdie of the 49ers, Mr. Irrelevant, last in the 2022 draft, now front runner for MVP. What did so many smart people and analysts and the data <laughs> miss about Brock Birdie? Yeah, you know what? The scouts saw him come out of Iowa State. It's a good program, not a powerhouse, not in an elite defensive conference. His size and his physical ability didn't necessarily attract scouts, but I'll tell you what he does really well, Scott. He processes things very quickly, and that matters in a Kyle Shanahan-led offense. Yeah. ESPN's Michelle Steele. Michelle, happy holidays. See you in the new year. Thanks so much for being with us. I know you'll be working this holidays. Thank you very much. Oh, yes, Scott. Thanks to the NFL. Happy Christmas.
Oh, we had a special gift this year, an interview that's one of our favorite things from 2023. There are few singers who enjoy one-name status, fewer still, just a single syllable. But Cher has been synonymous with glamour, invention, and then reinvention over seven decades. Once again, she's trying something new. I like Christmas. I like a real Christmas tree. I like a mall Santa Claus that lets me sit on his knee. Cher has her first Christmas album. Came out in October, before Halloween. So we had to ask why. It doesn't have anything to do with anything, really. It's like you've got a song, you love it, you do it. That's how you do it. That's how I do it. She also told us that when you listen to Christmas, there should be no confusion. It's a Christmas album, according to Cher. I picked very different songs, you know, that none of them really go together. I just did songs that I wanted to do and didn't think about if they went together. I just, they were like, they just felt like the holidays. Yeah. You've dedicated this album to your mother, Georgia Holt, who I I gather left us just before Christmas last year. Right. I wonder... And I have to tell you something. Yeah. I was happy for my mom because my mom and I are kind of similar in many aspects. But I know my mom wasn't having a good time. And my mom was like really kick ass, you know, and it was happy when she could leave it, you know, go on to something else. May I ask if doing these songs brought back memories of her and your Christmases together with family? Well, you know, it's strange. I wasn't thinking about those kinds of things, but my mom, even though my mom and I had such a rocky, we had the weirdest relationship ever, but um, my mom was kind of always in me, and I took my mom's voice. If you... There's a song that we sing together called You're Just My Yesterday, or I'm Just Your Yesterday, that's it. And if you listen to it, you can't really tell sometimes which one of us is which. And I couldn't grow, so I couldn't stay. My mom was a big influence on me. And we fought like cats and dogs sometimes. But um, when I'm singing, somehow she's inside of me, even though it's different. But you can hear, when you hear my mom sing, you hear me. So yeah, my mom's kind of always hanging out with me. Can I I ask you about uh, DJ? DJ play a Christmas song. I found that very touching. No, I know. You're very sensitive, aren't you, Scooter? <laughs> um, I'm I'm pretty sentimental but guy. Yeah, yeah. You think as someone going to a disco on Christmas and you think, oh, that's sad or whatever. But then you think, you know, people are getting together and having a good time. And it might not be the, you know, what you think of as a Christmas scene. But I can I can feel it. Nothing 
you have, I mean, a distinguished roster of some people, obviously, who join you on this, including Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah. Candles burning low. Lots of mistletoe. Lots of snow and ice. Everywhere we go. Choirs singing carols. Right outside my door. You must be like one of the only people in the world who can just say, just, what do you have, Stevie Wonder on speed dial and say, want to sing with me? (laughs) No, but that's what I did. I was really nervous. I was so nervous I didn't realize my assistant was videoing the whole conversation. But I called and I was like, Stevie, it's me. And, And it was like, I've done uh, what Christmas means to me, but there's parts of it that I just can't do. And I've tried it, and I'm not good, and I need you to come and do it. Oh, and he my said, gosh. okay. But I sent him, I said, I'm, I'm sending it to you, so if you think it's okay, will you do these parts? And so he said, yeah. In the middle of the conversation, he said, Cher, is this my song? And I went, well, why? I wouldn't be asking you to sing somebody else's song. And so then at the very minute, he went, hey, share, share, share. And I went, what? He said, do you want me to play harmonica? And it was like, oh. the sky opened. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Gotta ask you about Baby Please Come Home. You're joined by the great Darlene Love, and you you have a history with this song, don't you? I, do, I did background on that song when I was 17 years old. And I remember every second of it. It's indelible because we were in the studio you know, we were just hanging. And we were inside the studio with Darlene and she started to sing the song. I think every one of us stopped breathing. I have read. Oh God, that's don't, let's just let's just take that with a grain of salt. But tell me, well, that 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 you used to have stage fright. Still do. We say a prayer right before we go on, and I'm always thinking, oh God, please let me get out there quickly. So because once I start, I'm good. But right before I start, I'm just like, whoa, I can't do this. I'm a very I can't do this person. I'm wondering if that kind of helps you key up to a certain performance level. I don't know. And there have been some times where it just left, but then it always comes back. It's so strange. I'm not a Cher fan. I'm pretty good on stage, though. I'm quite interesting on stage. 
and I'm really funny, but um, not a big fan. I'm such a big Cher fan. Why aren't you? Because my voice is kind of strange to me. It's like, have you ever heard yourself talking? All the, all the time, and I cringe. Okay, well, how do you like it? I don't like it. Not at all. Okay, so case closed. <laughs> Um, do you think of that teenage share every now and then, the 17-year-old just making her way in the world? You know, I actually was talking about it with my friend, because when I was young, I was getting into so much trouble. I didn't do anything really bad. Like when I was nine, I jumped a freighter, but so that was kind of really weird. I'm sorry, you jumped a, you jumped a freighter when you were nine? Yes, a train. A freight train. You you jumped onto it and rode. Yeah, and went until we were in San Bernardino, and wow. rode a horse. I mean, it was crazy. That my mother didn't lose her mind with me is really bizarre. I just was interested. I was with my friend Anita, and we were coming home from school. And I just thought, you know what? I've just done enough. I don't want to go to school anymore. I want to get out there. And so we saw this white horse in a pasture and we rode it to the end which was quite a little way and then i saw a train sitting there and there was a crack in the door and i said let's jump on that and then it started to go and we went to san bernardino so i called mom and i told her what i did and she went share so she came and got me and but i don't think my mom was ever really surprised that's an amazing story. Well, I haven't I, told it all that often. Were you trying to get away somewhere or find yourself? I tried to run away on my tricycle. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I've learned enough from these people. I have to go. What do you like about singing? It's free. It's like it's freedom. My favorite thing in the world is to stand on a stage in rehearsal and just feel the music coming out of me because I'm not a big person, but I have a big voice and it feels really good. The warmth of your love is like the warmth of the sun. And this will be our year. Took a long time to go. That sounds beautiful. You are a big person, though. You have a big personality. No, I have a giant personality, but I'm not a big person. I mean, I'm little. But when I'm on stage, I feel like I feel like I need to be 15 feet tall. It's always 15 feet because you can't be small and be on stage and have everybody feel it. Art is all always about feeling. It's like art is. I think it can be the only thing that's completely about feeling. The one and only Cher has her first ever holiday album. It's called Christmas. Out now. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. I enjoyed it. Thank you. It was fun, wasn't it? This will be our year. Took a long time to go. Don't have to worry. All your worried days are gone. This will be our year. Took a long time. Yeah, that was fun, wasn't it? I had a lot of fun. 
Thanks very much uh, for being with us. Good holiday to all of you. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm with my friend Cher, and my name is Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From StoryWorth, each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next at 10 o'clock. It is 32 degrees in Boston with sunshine today. Highs in the low 40s tomorrow. Mostly cloudy, some isolated showers and temperatures in the mid-40s. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. And the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's journalism is essential across our community and in your own daily life. Listener support keeps WBUR going. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm executive editor for news Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.